Chapter One of the Conquest of Canaan by Booth Tarkington. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Rollins in Augusta, Georgia. Chapter One Enter Chorus. A dry snow had fallen steadily throughout the still night so that when a cold upper wind cleared the sky gloriously in the morning the incongruous indiana town shone in a white harmony roof ledge and earth as evenly covered as by moonlight there was no thaw only where the line of factories followed the big bend of the frozen river their distant chimneys like exclamation points on a blank page was there a first threat against the supreme whiteness the wind passed quickly and on high the shouting of the school children had ceased at nine o'clock with pitiful suddenness no sleigh bells laughed out on the air and the muffling of the thoroughfares wrought an unaccustomed peace like that of sunday this was the phenomenon which afforded the opening of the morning debate of the sages in the wide windows of the national house only such unfortunates as have so far failed to visit canaan do not know that the national house is on the main street side of the courthouse square and has the advantage of being within two minutes walk of the railroad station which is in plain sight of the windows an inestimable benefit to the conversation of the aged men who occupied these windows on this white morning even as they were wont in summer to hold against all comers the cane-seated chairs on the pavement outside thence as trains came and went they commanded the city gates and seeking motives and adding to the stock of history narrowly observed and examined into all who entered or departed their habit was not singular he who would foolishly tax the sages of canaan with a bucolic light-mindedness must first walk in piccadilly in early june stroll down the corso in rome before ash wednesday or regard those windows of fifth avenue whose curtains are withdrawn of a winter sunday for in each of these great streets wherever the windows not of trade are widest his eyes must behold wise men like to those of canaan executing always their same purpose the difference is in favor of canaan the national house was the club but the perusal of traveller or passer-by was here only the splume blown before a stately ship of thought and you might hear the sages comparing the koran with the speeches of robert j ingersoll in the days of broad sidewalks mail-time had meant a precise moment for canaan and even now many years after the first postman it remained somewhat definite to the aged men for out of deference to a pleasant olden custom and perhaps partly for an excuse to get down to the hotel which was not altogether in favor with the elderly ladies most of them retained their antique boxes in the post office happily in the next building in this connection it may be written that a subscription clerk in the office of the chicago daily standard having noted a single subscriber from canaan was a fortnight later pleased to receive by one mail 
nine subscriptions from that promising town if one brought nine others in a fortnight thought he what would nine bring in a month amazingly they brought nothing and the rest was silence here was a matter of intricate diplomacy never to come within that youth his kin the morning voyage to the post-office long mocked as a fable and screened by the families of the sages had grown so difficult to accomplish for one of them colonel flitcroft colonel in the war with mexico that he had been put to it indeed to foot the firing line against his lady a lady of celebrated determination and hale voiced at seventy and to defend the rental of a box which had sheltered but three missives in four years desperation is often inspiration the colonel brilliantly subscribed for the standard forgetting to give his house address and it took the others just thirteen days to wring his secret from him then the standard served for all mail time had come to mean that bright hour when they all got their feet on the brass rod which protected the sills of the two big windows with the steam radiators sizzling like kettles against the side wall mr jonas tabor who had sold his hardware business magnificently not magnificently for his nephew the purchaser some ten years before was usually in spite of the fact that he remained a bachelor at seventy-nine the last to settle down with the others though often the first to reach the hotel which he always entered by a side door because he did not believe in the treating system and it was mr askew arp only seventy-five who already a thoroughly capable cynic who almost invariably opened the argument and it was he who discovered the singular intervention behind the weather of this particular morning mr arp had not begun life so sourly as a youth he had been proud of his given name which had come to him through his mother's family who had made it honourable but many years of explanation that eskew did not indicate his initials had lowered his opinion of the intelligence and morality of the race the malevolence of his voice and manner this morning therefore when he shook his finger at the town beyond the windows and exclaimed with a bitter laugh look at it was no surprise to his companions just look at it i tell you the devil's mighty smart <laughs> mighty smart through custom it was the duty of squire buckaloo justice of the peace in fifty nine to be the first to take up mr arp the others looked to him for it therefore he asked sharply what's the devil got to do with snow everything to do with it sir mr arp retorted it's plain as day to anybody with eyes and sense and i wish you'd point it out said buckaloo if you got either by the almighty squire mr arp returned to his chair with sudden heat if i'd lived as long as you you have interrupted the other stung twelve years ago if i lived as long as you mr arp repeated unwincingly in a louder voice and had followed satan's trail as long as you have and yet couldn't recognize it when i see it i'd get converted and vote prohibitionist i don't see it interjected uncle joe davy in his querulous voice he was the patriarch of them all i can't find no cloven hoofprints in the snow all over it sir cried the cynic all over it old satan loves tricks like this 
here's a town that's just one squirming mass of lies and envy and vice and wickedness and corruption hold on exclaimed colonel flitcroft that's a slander against our hearts and our government why when i was in the council it wasn't a bit worse then mr harp returned unreasonably jest you look how the devil fools us he drops down this here virgin mantle on canaan and makes it look as good as you pretend you think it is as good as the sunday school room of a country church though that he went off on a tangent vehemently is generally only another whited sepulchre and the superintendent's mighty apt to have a bottle of whiskey hid behind the organ and look here eskew said jonas tabor that's got nothing to do with why ain't it answer me cried arp continuing without pause why ain't it and you wait till i get through you listen to me and when i'm ready i'll listen to see here began the colonel making himself heard over three others i want to ask you no sir mr arp pounded the floor irascibly with his hickory stick don't you ask me anything how can you tell that i'm not going to answer your question without your asking it till i've got through you listen first i say here's a town of nearly thirty thousand inhabitants every last one of them men women and children selfish and cowardly and sinful if you could see their innermost natures a town of the ugliest and worst-built houses in the world and governed by a lot of saloon-keepers though i hope it'll never get down to where the ministers can run it and the devil comes along and in one night why all you got to do is look at it you'd think we needn't ever trouble to make it better that's what the devil wants us to do wants us to rest easy about it and paints it up to look like a heaven of peace and purity and sanctified spirits snowfall like this would have made lot turn the angel out of doors and say that the old home was good enough for him gomorrah would have looked like a puritan village though i'll bet my last dollar that there was a lot and a whole lot that's never been told about puritan villages a lot that what never was interrupted mr peter bradbury whose granddaughter had lately announced her discovery that the bradburys were descended from miles standish what wasn't told about puritan villages can't you wait mr arp's accents were those of pain haven't i got any right to present my side of the case ain't we restrained enough to allow a free speech here how can we ever get anywhere in an argument like this unless we let one man talk at a time how go on with your statement said uncle joe davy impatiently mr arp's grievance was increased now listen to you how many more interruptions are coming i'll listen to the other side but i've got to state mine first haven't i if i don't make my point clear what's the use of the argument argumentation is only the comparison of two sides of a question and you have to see what the first side is before you can compare it with the other one don't you are you all agreed to that yes yes said the colonel go ahead we won't interrupt until you're through very well resumed mr arp with a fleeting expression of satisfaction as i said before i wish to as i said he paused in some confusion as i said argumentation is that is i say he stopped again utterly at sea having talked himself so far out of his course 
that he was unable to recall either his sailing port or his destination finally he said feebly to save the confession well go on with your side of it this generosity was for a moment disconcerting however the quietest of the party took up the opposition roger tabor a very thin old man with a clean-shaven face almost as white as his hair and melancholy gentle gray eyes very unlike those of his brother jonas which were dark and sharp and button-bright it was to roger's son that jonas had so magnificently sold the hardware business roger was known in canaan as the artist there had never been another of his profession in the place and the town knew not the word painter except in application to the useful artisan who is subject to lead poisoning there was no indication of his profession in the attire of mr tabor unless the too apparent age of his black felt hat and the neat patch at the elbow of his shiny old brown overcoat might have been taken as symbols of the sacrifice to his muse which his life had been he was not a constant attendant of the conclave and when he came it was usually to listen indeed he spoke so seldom that at the sound of his voice they all turned to him with some surprise i suppose he began that erskew means the devil is behind all beautiful things ugly ones too said mr arp with a start of recollection and i wish to state not now colonel fitzcroft turned upon him violently you've already stated it then if he's behind the ugly things too said roger we must take him either way so let us be glad of the beauty for its own sake eskew says this is a wicked town it may be i don't know he says it's badly built perhaps it is but it doesn't seem to me that it's ugly in itself i don't know what its real self is because it wears so many aspects god keeps painting it all the time and never shows me twice the same picture not even two snowfalls are just alike nor the days that follow them no more than two misty sunsets are alike for the color and even the form of the town you call ugly are a matter of the season of the year and of the time of day and of the light and air the ugly town is like an endless gallery which you can walk through from year end to year end never seeing the same canvas twice no matter how much you may want to and there's the pathos of it isn't it the same with people with the characters of all of us just as it is with our faces no face remains the same for two successive days you don't colonel flitcroft interrupted with an explosive and rueful incredulity well i'd like to second thoughts came to him almost immediately and as much out of gallantry as through discretion fearing that he might be taken as thinking of one at home he relapsed into silence not so with the others it was as if a firecracker had been dropped into a sleeping poultry-yard least of all could mr arp contain himself at the top of his voice necessarily he agreed with roger that faces changed not only from day to day and not only because of light and air and such things but from hour to hour and from minute to minute through the hideous stimulus of hypocrisy the argument grew heated half a dozen tiny quarrels arose 
all the sages went at it fiercely except roger tabor who stole quietly away the aged men were enjoying themselves thoroughly especially those who quarrelled naturally the frail bark of the topic which had been launched was whirled about by too many side currents to remain long in sight and soon became derelict while the intellectual dolphins dove and tumbled in the depths at the end of twenty minutes mr arp emerged upon the surface and in his mouth was this tell me why ain't the church why ain't the church and the rest of the believers in a future life looking for immortality at the other end of life too if we're immortal we always have been and why don't they ever speculate on what we were before we were born it's because they're too blamed selfish don't care a flat doodle about what was all they want is to go on living forever mr arp's voice had risen to an acrid triumphancy when it suddenly faltered relapsed to a murmur and then to a stricken silence as a tall fat man of overpowering aspect threw open the outer door nearby and crossed the lobby to the clerk's desk an awe fell upon the sages with this advent they were hushed and after a movement in their chairs with a strange effect of huddling sat disconcerted and attentive like schoolboys at the entrance of the master the personage had a big fat pink face and a heavily undershot jaw what whitish beard he wore following his double chin somewhat after the manner displayed in the portraits of henry the eighth his eyes very bright under puffed upper lids were intolerant and insultingly penetrating despite their small size their irritability held a kind of hotness and yet the personage exuded frost not of the weather all about him you could not imagine man or angel daring to greet this being genially sooner throw a kiss to mount pilatus mr brown he said with ponderous hostility and a bull bass to the clerk the kind of voice which would have made an express train leave the track and go round the other way do you hear me oh yes judge the clerk replied swiftly in tones as unlike those which he used for strange transients as a collector's voice in his lady love's ear is unlike that which he propels at delinquents you see that snow asked the personage threateningly yes judge mr brown essayed a placating smile yes indeed judge pike has your employer the manager of this hotel seen that snow pursued the personage with a gesture of unspeakable solemn menace yes sir i think so yes sir do you think he fully understands that i am the proprietor of this building certainly judge certainly you will inform him that i do not intend to be discommoded by his negligence as i pass to my offices tell him from me that unless he keeps the sidewalks in front of this hotel clear of snow i will cancel his lease their present condition is outrageous do you understand me outrageous you hear yes judge i, I do so answered the clerk hoarse with respect I'll, i see to it this minute judge pike you had better the personage turned himself about and began a grim progress towards the door by which he had entered his eyes fixing themselves angrily upon the conclave at the windows 
Colonel Flitcroft essayed a smile, a faltering one. Fine weather, Judge Pike, he said hopefully. There was no response of any kind. The undershot jaw became more intolerant. The personage made his opinion of the group disconcertingly plain, and the old boys understood that he knew them for a worthless lot of senile loafers, as great a nuisance in his building as was the snow without, and much too evident was his unspoken threat to see that the manager cleared them out of there before long. He nodded curtly to the only man of substance among them jonas tabor and shut the door behind him with majestic insult he was canaan's millionaire he was one of those dynamic creatures who leave the haunting impression of their wills behind them like the tails of bo peep's sheep like the evil dead men have done he left his intolerant image in the ether for a long time after he had gone to confront and confound the aged men and hold them in deferential and humiliated silence each of them was mysteriously lowered in his own estimation and knew that he had been made to seem futile and foolish in the eyes of his fellows they were all conscious too that the clerk had been acutely receptive of judge pike's reading of them that he was reviving from his own squelchedness through the later snubbing of the colonel also that he might further seek to recover his poise by an attack on them for cluttering up the office naturally jonas tabor was the first to speak judd pike's looking mighty well he said admiringly yes he is ventured squire buckaloo with deference mighty well yes sir echoed peter bradbury mighty well he's a great man wheezed uncle joe davy a great man judge martin pike a great man i expect he has considerable on his mind said the colonel who had grown very red i noticed that he hardly seemed to see us yes sir mr bradbury corroborated with an attempt at an amused laugh i noticed it too of course a man with all his cares and interests must get absent-minded now and then of course he does said the colonel a man with all his responsibilities yes that's so came a chorus of the brethren finding comfort and reassurance as their voices and spirits began to recover from the blight there's a party at the judge's to-night said mr bradbury kind of a ball mamie pike's giving for the young folks quite a doings i hear that's another thing that's ruining canaan mr arp declared morosely these entertainments they have nowadays spend all the money out of town band from indianapolis chicken salad and darky waiters from chicago and what i want to know is what's this town going to do about the nigger question what about it asked mr davy belligerently what about it mr arp mocked fiercely you better say what about it well what maintained mr davy steadfastly i'll bet there ain't any less than four thousand niggers in canaan to-day mr arp hammered the floor with his stick every last one of em criminals and more coming on every train no such a thing said squire buckaloo living up to his bounden duty you look down the street there's the ten forty five coming in now 
I'll bet you a straight five-cent peek-a-boo cigar there ain't any nigger on the whole train except the sleeping-car porters. What kind of a way to argue is that? demanded Mr. Arp hotly. Betting ain't proof, is it? Besides, that's the through express from the east. I meant trains from the south. You didn't say so, retorted Buckaloo triumphantly. Stick to your bet, Eskew, stick to your bet. My bet, cried the outraged Eskew. Who offered to bet? You did, replied the squire, with perfect assurance and sincerity. The others supported him the heartiest spirit of on with the dance, and war and joy were unconfined. A decrepit hack or two, a couple of old-fashioned surreys, and a few cut-unders drove by, bearing the newly arrived and their valises, the hotel omnibus depositing several commercial travellers at the door. A solitary figure came from the station on foot, and when it appeared within fair range of the window, Uncle Joe Dady, who had but hovered on the flanks of the combat, first removed his spectacles and wiped them, as though distrusting the vision they offered him, then replacing them, scanned anew the approaching figure, and uttered a smothered cry my lord almighty he gasped what's this look there they looked a truce came involuntarily and they sat in paralytic silence as the figure made its stately and sensational progress along main street not only the aged men were smitten men shoveling snow from the pavements stopped suddenly in their labors two women talking busily on a doorstep were stilled and remained in frozen attitudes as it passed a grocer's clerk crossing the pavement carrying a heavily laden basket to his delivery wagon halted halfway as the figure came near and then making a pivot of his heels as it went by behaved towards it as does the magnetic needle to the pole it was that of a tall gentleman cheerfully though somewhat with Onway, and during his nineteenth winter his long and slender face he wore smiling beneath an accurately cut plaster of dark hair cornicing his forehead a fashion followed by many youths of that year his perfect bang was shown under a round black hat whose rim was so small as almost not to be there at all and the head was supported by a waxy white sea-wall of collar rising three inches above the blue billows of a puffed cravat upon which floated a large hollow pearl his ulster sporting a big cape at the shoulders and a tasseled hood over the cape was of a rough scotch cloth patterned in faint gray and white squares the size of baggage checks and it was so long that the skirts trailed in the snow his legs were lost in the accurately creased voluminous garments that were the tailor's canny reaction from the tight trousers with which the eighties had begun they were in color a polish russet broadly striped with gray and in size surpassed the milder spirit of fashion so far as they permitted a liberal knee action to take place almost without superficial effect upon his feet glistened long shoes shaped save for the heels like sharp racing shells these were partially protected by tan-colored low gaiters with flat 
shiny brown buttons in one hand the youth swung a bone-handled walking-stick perhaps an inch and a half in diameter the other he carried a yellow leather banjo-case upon the outer side of which glittered the embossed silver initials e b he was smoking but walked with his head up making use however of a gait at that time new to canaan a seeming superbly irresponsible lounge engendering much motion of the shoulders producing an effect of carelessness combined with independence an effect which the innocent have been known to hail as an unconscious one he looked about him as he came smilingly with an expression of princely amusement as an elder cabinet minister say strolling about a village where he had spent some months in his youth a hamlet which he had then thought large and imposing but which being revisited after years of cosmopolitan glory appeals to his whimsy and his pity the youth's glance at the courthouse unmistakably said ah i recall that odd little box i thought it quite large in the days before i became what i am now and i dare say the good townsfolk still think it an imposing structure with everything in sight he deigned to be amused especially with the old faces in the national house windows to these he waved his stick with airy graciousness my soul said mr davy it seems to know some of us yes agreed mr arp his voice recovered and i know it you do exclaimed the colonel i do and so do you it's fanny loudon's boy jean come home for his christmas holidays by george you're right cried flintcroft i recognize him now but what's the matter with him asked mr bradbury eagerly has he joined some patent medicine troop not a bit replied eskew he went east to college last fall do they make the boys wear them clothes persisted bradbury is it some kind of uniform i don't care what it is said jonas tabor if i was henry loudon i wouldn't let him wear em around here oh you wouldn't would you jonas mr arp employed the accents of sarcasm i'd like to see henry loudon try to interfere with jean bantry fanny'd lock the old fool up in the cellar the lofty vision lurched out of view i reckon said the colonel leaning forward to see the last of it i reckon henry loudon's about the saddest case of abused stepfather i ever saw it's his own fault said mr arp twice not having sense enough not to marry him with a son of his own too yes assented the colonel marrying a widow with a son of her own and that widow fanny wasn't it just the same with her first husband bantry mr davy asked not for information as he immediately answered himself you bet it was didn't she always rule the roost yes she did she made a god of jean from the day he was born bantry's house was run for him like loudon's is now and look exclaimed mr arp with satisfaction at the way he's turned out he ain't turned out at all yet he's too young said buckaloo besides clothes don't make the man wasn't he smoking a cigarette cried eskew triumphantly this was final it's a pity henry loudon can't do something for his own son said mr bradbury why don't he send him away to college 
Fanny won't let him, chuckles Mr. Arp malevolently. Takes all their spare change to keep Jean there in style. I don't blame her. Jean certainly acts the fool, but that Joe Loudon is the orneriest boy I ever saw in an ornery world full. He always was kind of mischievous, admitted Buckaloo. I don't think he's mean, though. It does seem kind of not just right that Joe's father's money, Pantry didn't leave anything to speak of, has to go to keeping Jean on the fat of the land, with Joe getting up at half-past four to carry papers and him going on nineteen years old. It's all he's fit for, exclaimed Eskew. He's low down, I tell you. Ain't it only last week Judge Pike caught him shooting craps with Pike's nigger driver and some other nigger hired men in the alley back of Pike's barn? Mr. Schindlinger, the retired grocer, one of the silent members, corroborated Eskew's information. I hear that, too, he gave forth in his fat voice. He plays domino pretty often in the room back of Louis Barbeck's saloon. I see myself pretty often playing for a little money mid loafers loafers pretty outlook for the loudons said eskew arp much pleased one boy a plum fool and dressed like it the other gone to the dogs already what could you expect joe to be retorted squire buckaloo what chance has he ever had long as i can remember fanny's made him fetch and carry for jean jean had everything all the fancy clothes all the pocket money and now college you ever hear that boy joe talk politics asked uncle joe davy crossing a cough with a chuckle his head so full of schemes for running this town and state too it's a wonder it don't bust henry loudon told me he see joe set around and study by the hour out of say three million dollars for the state in two years and the best he can do for himself added eskew is delivering the daily toxin on a second-hand star bicycle and gambling with niggers and riffraff. None of the nice young folks invite him to their doings any more. That's because he's got so shabby he's quit going with them, said Buckaloo. No, it ain't, snapped Mr. Arp. It's because he's so low down. He's no more than a town outcast. They ain't any one of the girls will have a thing to do with him except that rip-roaring tomboy next door to Loudon's, and the others don't have much to do with her, either, I can tell you, that airy Tabor. Colonel Flitcroft caught him surreptitiously by the arm. Shh, Eskew, he whispered. Look out what you're saying. You needn't mind me, Jonas Tabor spoke up crisply. I've washed my hands of all responsibility for Roger's branch of the family long ago. Never was one of them had the energy or brains to make a decent living, beginning with Roger. Not one worth his salt. I set Roger's son up in business, and all the return he ever made me was to go into bankruptcy and take to drink till he died a sot, like his wife did of shame. I done all I could when I handed him over my store, and I never expect to lift a finger for him again. Ariel Tabor's my grandniece, but she didn't act like it. And you can say anything you like about her for what I care. The last time I spoke to her was a year and a half ago, and I don't reckon I'll ever trouble to again. How was that, Jonas? quickly inquired Mr. Davy, who, being the eldest of the party, was the most curious. What happened? She was out in the street, up on that high bicycle of Joe Loudon's, 
He was teaching her to ride, and she was sitting on it like a man does. I stopped and told her she wasn't respectable. Sixteen years old, going on seventeen. What did she say? Laughed, said Jonas, his voice becoming louder as the recital of his wrongs renewed their sting in his soul. Laughed. What did you do? I went up to her and told her she wasn't a decent girl and shook the wheel. Mr. Tabor illustrated by seizing the lapels of Joe Davy and shaking him. I told her if her grandfather had any spunk, she'd get an old-fashioned hiding for behaving that way, and I shook the wheel again. Here Mr. Tabor, forgetting in the wrath incited by the recollection that he had not to do with an inanimate object, swung the gasping and helpless Mr. Davy rapidly back and forth in his chair. I shook it good and hard. What did she do then? asked Peter Badbury. Fell off on me, replied Jonas, violently. On purpose. And I wish she'd killed you, said Mr. Davy in a choking voice, as, released, he sank back in his chair. On purpose, repeated Jonas, and smashed a straw hat I hadn't had three months, all to pieces so it couldn't be fixed. And what then? pursued Bradbury. She ran, replied Jonas bitterly, ran. And Joe Loudon, Joe Loudon, he paused and gulped. What did he do? Peter leaned forward in his chair eagerly. The narrator of the outrage gulped again and opened and shut his mouth before responding. He said if I didn't pay for a broken spoke on his wheel, he'd have to sue me. No one inquired if Jonas had paid, and Jonas said no more. The recollection of his wrongs, together with the illustrative violence offered to Mr. Davy, had been too much for him. He sank back, panting, in his chair, his hands fluttering nervously over his heart, and closed his eyes. I wonder why, ruminated Mr. Bradbury, I wonder why Jean Bantry walked up from the depot. Don't seem much like his style. Should think he had a road up and a hack. Show, said Uncle Joe Davy, his breath recovered. He wanted to walk up past Judge Pike's to see if there wasn't a show of Mamie's being at the window and give her a chance to look at that college uniform and banjo box and new walk of his. Mr. Arp began to show signs of uneasiness. I'd like mighty well to know, he said, shifting around in his chair. If there's anybody here that's been able to answer the question I put yesterday, just before we went home. You all tried to, but I didn't hear anything I could consider any ways near even a fair argument. Who tried to? asked Buckaloo sharply, sitting up straight. What question? What proof can you bring me, began Mr. Arp deliberately, that we folks, modernly, ain't more degenerate than the ancient Romans? End of chapter 1